Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1. A little bit of a background. Actually, before I get into the background here, a quick plug. I meant to mention this during uh, announcements. If you are interested, we're starting up a new men's study out here. Matt Christie is going to be leading this up. This is basically for about the ages of about 18 to 30. Going to be doing a wonderful study of a book called uh, Measure of a Man. I cannot stress this to you enough. It's one of my favorite devotionals we've ever done out here. There's a sign-up sheet back there to my right. Men, if you're interested in that, talk to Matt. Look at the sign-up sheet there. See if that's something you want to get involved with. It will bless you. I will tell you that. It will definitely bless you. Now, Exodus chapter 1. Now, you guys know we finished up Genesis, and then we had Christmas Eve, and we had New Year's Eve, so that means we've now had a couple weeks here without having our typical Wednesday night. I just want to let you know, I did not want to do Exodus. I did not. So I drug my feet. I was ready to do something different, because Genesis follows this narrative, and I was ready to do something a little different, and the Lord just kept taking me back to Exodus. So I started preparing the message there for Exodus chapter 1, and I was not wanting to do it, so I quit. And he kind of said, this is where you need to go. And so I was begrudgingly preparing this. And as I'm begrudgingly preparing this, fell in love with it. And I hope you're as blessed as I am. And the reason I didn't want to do Exodus is because I thought we've done this narrative of Jacob and Joseph for so long. And Genesis has so much drama in it. So much drama. And my life already has enough drama. I wanted to do something different. Let's go to Jonah. Talk about a guy getting swallowed by a fish or something. You know, something completely different. But it really makes sense to go into Exodus because Exodus really picks off right where Genesis left off. Now, we're not doing the full study in Exodus. I want everybody to know that. Exodus is a little bit of a longer book there. We're not doing that. We're going to stop at Exodus chapter 20. We're going to go up to the Ten Commandments and stop. Now, this is going to be a little bit quicker study. And by what I mean by quicker study is, like, for example, tonight we're going to do the first chapter and a half. Because Exodus flows pretty quick here. Moses is the main character. He's a fascinating character. We're introduced to him already in chapter 2. So you get to learn a lot about Moses. Now, if you're like me, sometimes these Old Testament timelines and time frames get a little confusing. So just to kind of remind you, there's about 400 years between Moses and Abraham. I remember when I was a kid, and I would hear about Moses and Abraham and Jacob and Joseph. I put them all together in one group. There's centuries difference in time frame here between Moses and Abraham. So where we finish off in Genesis, and we kind of, Genesis, excuse me, Exodus chapter 1 kind of fast forwards us a few hundred years. And when we get to the birth of Moses here in Exodus chapter 2, we're about 500 years past where Abraham was, just to kind of keep that in the back of your mind. Now, Nice little introduction here into Exodus. It's called Exodus because they exit Egypt. Pretty straightforward there. We left off in Genesis with the nation of Israel and Egypt. We ended on a high note. Verse 1 of Exodus 1. Now these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt. Each man in his household came with Jacob. we got the 12 tribes here. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Ishakar, Zebulon, and Benjamin. Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All those who were descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. For Joseph was in Egypt already. They went in with about 70 people. And they left with millions of people. Now keep that in the back of your mind. We know from Exodus 12 that when they left, about 400 some years later, there were 600,000 men, not including women and children. So it would be easy, easy to have 2 to 3 million. I've heard many different estimates. The low end is maybe a million and a half. The high end is up to about 4 million people. 
There was a lot of people that left here. So they showed up with about 70. A few hundred years later, we're talking 3, 4 million Jews. Verse 6, And Joseph died, all his brothers and all that generation. But the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. Filled with them. They just kind of kept reproducing. Here in a couple of verses, Egypt says they outnumber us. They get a little scared that basically what happens if the invading army attacks and the Jews decide to go on their side? God said this is what's going to happen. This is promise. Keep your hand here in Exodus. Just jump back to Genesis 15. Genesis 15 real quick. Keep your hand here in Genesis 15 because we've got a couple references in Genesis 15 we're going to talk about. Genesis 15 is that great chapter where God promises the covenant to Abraham and Abraham in faith believes this and accepts this. But in Genesis 15, look at verse 5. Genesis 15, verse 5. Then he, meaning God, brought him, meaning Abraham, outside and said, look now toward heaven and count the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. It happened. Now we've talked about Abraham many, many times. Abraham meant father of many, right? And Abraham really only had one son that we care about, Isaac. So Isaac is going to carry on this blessing of the father of many. Isaac then has two kids, Jacob and Esau. So then Jacob's going to carry on the blessing and finally we kick it up and out. Jacob has 12. But still, When you get to Egypt, there's only about 70 of them. So the promise was that you will have descendants as many as the stars in the heaven, and they have 70. Real quick teaching point here. Sometimes it takes a while for God to fulfill His promises, but He will always fulfill His promises. He always will. I don't know what Abraham thought. Father of many, one kid. Isaac, two kids. Jacob, finally 12. I don't even know if I would consider having 12 kids as many as the stars that are in the heavens. Seventy, that's a lot, but that's not a lot of descendants. By the time they leave Egypt, we're talking millions and millions of people. It took a few centuries, but God kept his promises. Don't ever forget that. Keep your hand here in Genesis 15 because we're going to come back to that. So, Exodus 1 verse 8 changes now. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply and it happen in the event of war, that they also join our enemies and fight against us, and so go up out of the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens, and they built for Pharaoh supply cities Pitham and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew, and they were in dread of the children of Israel. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve them with rigor. So the Egyptians, excuse me, Verse 13, Egyptians made the children of Israel serve them with rigor. In verse 14, they made their lives bitter with hard bondage and mortar and brick and all manner of service in the field. And their service in which they made them serve was with, with rigor. You know, the Bible in the original Hebrew language here is really trying to push how awful the Egyptians treated them. Depending on your translations, like verse 13, my translation says the Egyptians made them serve with rigor. Some of your translations says work them ruthlessly, work the people without mercy. I mean, these guys were slaves. I mean, they, they were just beaten. They were just oppressed, etc. If you still have your hand in Genesis 15, we knew this was going to happen. Look at verse 13. Then he said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs. Egypt will serve them, slaves, and they will afflict them 400 years. 
Exactly what happened. And also that nation whom they serve, I will judge. Parting of the Red Sea. Afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. Verse 14, the Bible says that when Israel left Egypt, that they plundered them. Hundreds of years of back wages. They plundered them. Guess what? It happened exactly like God said it would. Exactly like God said it would. Isn't it fascinating that we have all these promises of God? All of them. But yet we still have these moments where we know it's true, but just the reality of it is we just don't believe it like we should. I mean, think of all the promises of God real quick here. He says that he will work good in all things in your life. He's promised that he'll never leave you nor forsake you. He promises that he has a plan for your life, a wonderful plan. But yet in the middle of darkness and despair, we don't remember those things, do we? So how often do you think did Israel forget that they were going to become as numerous as the stars of the sky? Did Israel forget that they were going to be oppressed for 400 years? You know, the promises of God were true. But I want to focus on is this. I love verse 12. The more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And they were in dread of the children of Israel. I'm telling you right now, if you're here tonight and your life right now is a very difficult life, verse 12 is your verse. The more you are afflicted, the more you will grow. There's a truth to that. Let's go on a quick tour of the New Testament, if you will, with me, please. Let's start our tour in James chapter 1. We're going to go James 1, then we're going to jump one book to the right to 1 Peter 1. Let's talk about verses that we never want to talk about. James chapter 1. We're going to talk about the purpose of affliction and going through difficult times. Think of that verse again. The more they were afflicted, the more they grew. James 1. And let's go ahead and start in verse 2. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. God says tough times grow you. He says tough times are good for you. Tough times make you decide what's important to you. There's been this little phrase that we've been using a lot out here talking to people. And it's a phrase called crisis of faith. A crisis of faith is when you have an event that happens in your life, and it is just that. It is a crisis. It's a difficult time. It's a horrible time. But in that difficult time, you either, one, go deeper in your walk with the Lord because your faith kicks in and you say, Lord, I believe you, I trust you in the dark times, or your faith completely falters. How do you know how your faith is going to stand until you go through something difficult? That's why it's called a crisis of faith. It is so easy to say, praise the Lord when things are going good. But we do not know how strong your faith is until you are tested in that faith. That's why the Lord allows difficult times into your life to be a spiritual mirror to say, you can do this. You can handle this. And it just amazes me. There's people that I've run into that I thought they could handle anything. A crisis of faith hits them and they deflate spiritually. They just deflate. Never saw that coming. And there's people that I don't think can handle a stubbed toe. And then something drastic happens in their life, and they rise to the occasion. Because they can handle the crisis of faith. See, what happened to Israel was a century, century long crisis of faith. And they multiplied and they grew. James is telling us right here, count it all joy. Because you are being tested, and your testing will show that you are complete and perfect in God. Complete and perfect. You don't need to turn to this next reference before we go to First Peter. I'll just read it to you. This is out of Romans 5. Romans 5, if you're a note taker, verse 3. I'm reading out of the New Living Translation. 
We can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they help us develop endurance. And endurance develops strength of character, and character strengthens our confidence, hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead to disappointment. Look at that first verse again. We can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they help us develop endurance. Boy, that's the truth. When you go through a crisis of faith, you either come out on the other end stronger you walk with the Lord, or you come out realizing how weak your walk with the Lord really was. It's a really eye-opening. It's really revealing. So let's go one more passage on this. First Peter 1, please. Let's jump one book to the right. First Peter chapter 1. Verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This verse has everything you need to know. Look at verse 6. We rejoice because this crisis of faith, this difficult time, is going to help me become a better believer. Though now for a little while, let's just be honest, most difficult times only last a little while. Now, you may be thinking, a little while, I've been dealing with this for weeks. Weeks in the span of 70, 80 years is really not that long. You may say, I've been dealing with this with months. Okay, months really aren't that long. Years. Well, I've been dealing with this my entire life. Your entire life is a drop in the bucket compared to eternity. See, in the whole scheme of things, it's really not that long. Compared to eternity, it's not. Here's the next one. That for a little while, if need be, if need be, you want to know how good a shape you are in spiritually? You have to go through some testing. God says you need to go through this, and as you go through this, it will reveal how strong your faith is. You have been grieved by various trials, verse 6, that word grieved, distressed, problems, etc. They're not easy, and don't, and don't try to pretend they are. Every now and then I run into a believer who's going through one of these awful situations and they try to just say, oh, this is good. No, it's not good. It's a grief. It's a distress. It's a problem. It hurts. Because it is a difficult time. But what does it show? Verse 7, the genuineness of your faith. It reveals it. I mean, and we, we know this in the real world. If I want to know if I'm in good shape, I go out and I run, I exercise, I do something. That's very eye-opening. It reveals what type of shape I'm in. Same thing spiritually. How strong is my walk with the Lord? Well, let's go through a trial and see how you respond. That's what's going on here. So we read these passages about how they're going through a difficult time, but yet they grew and multiplied exceedingly. The same thing happens to us. It's not that all of a sudden you're going to start having a bunch of kids, but your faith is going to grow multiply exceedingly because it's those difficult times that reveal your faith and you're either going to rise to the occasion with Christ as your foundation or you're going to falter. And if you falter, the Lord says, okay, now you know what you need to work on. This is what we're going to work on because guess what? A test is going to happen again. It's tough. But I keep seeing the difficult times are there for a reason. If you are afflicted right now, if you're going through a difficult time, the Lord is allowing that to grow you, to reveal to you, to show you How strong are you? It's not fun. It's not easy. But yet, it's important in our walk and relationship with Christ. Anybody got any quick questions, comments about that before going? Ryan. Uh, Verse 11 mentions the city of Ramses. Traditionally, a lot of people think that Ramses II was the Pharaoh of the Exodus. And he was supposedly 
Right. It was a very common name, and there was actually many different cities of Ramses as well. Because when I looked this up and I did some studying on the cities of Pitham and Ramses preparing for this message, Ramses was actually a fairly common city name. It really was. So it was kind of tough to get a chance to know for sure which city it was. And plus that phrase right there, verse 11, and they built for Pharaoh supply cities. That phrase, supply cities in the Hebrew, it's a very difficult phrase to translate. And they don't know 100% for sure what that means of what that was. So yes, what you're saying there, Ryan, is true. That it's sometimes tough to track this down specifically. And this is sometimes, I think, what happens to us as Christians. Is we as Christians believe the Bible, but we're really looking for the secular world to confirm the Bible. And really the Bible should confirm the secular world. You know, if this is a truth book, a book of truth by God, I don't need the secular world to confirm it. I don't. And I think a lot of times as believers, we're looking for that secular world to confirm what the Bible says. You know, I look at verse 11, and they built for the Pharaoh supply cities Pithom and Ramses. It happened. Now, what exactly was Ramses city was that? Well, I don't know. There's a lot of Ramses cities out there. But yeah, like Ryan was saying there, we don't know for sure which one it was. Ramses was a kind of a common name there for Pharaohs and also cities, too. Anybody else have anything here before I go? Yeah, Robin. What was that uh, reference for Romans? Romans 5, verses 3 through 5. Romans 5, 3 through 5. Anybody else have anything here before we go on? Okay. Somebody's horn is beeping out there. All right, so let's move on here. Uh, verse 15. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of whom the name of one was Shapar, and the name of the other was Puah. And he said, when you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stools, if it is a son, then you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, why have you done this thing and saved the male children alive? And the midwives came to Pharaoh and said, because the Hebrew women are like the Egyptian women. They are lively and give birth before the midwives come to them. Therefore, God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very mightily. And so it was because the midwives feared God that he provided households for them. So Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. Boy, Satan's plans have not really changed. I mean, have you noticed that? I mean, this is just kind of the way that the enemy has always done it. We see it back with uh, Herod. Hey, the Messiah is coming. Okay, let's just kill all the kids three and under them. Let's just take them all out. We see it right here. We see Israel growing. What does the enemy do? Well, he raises up this pharaoh that basically says, we're just going to start killing Hebrew children. You know, we talk about this uh, right to life movement. These gals are really the first people of the right to life movement here. They were not going to do anything. And so what happens is they knew to disobey. And so a lot of times when we hear that phrase disobey, you know, we struggle with this. Romans 13 tells me to obey the government. It does. But Acts 5 says you obey God more than you obey the government. So if the government comes down and says, hey, Hebrew women, you need to start killing every Hebrew male, but keep the women, no, they're not under any obligation to honor that and do that in any way whatsoever. The Lord saw the heart. The Lord saw the stance that they took. They put their lives on the line, and the Lord honored them, verse 21, because they feared God more than they feared Pharaoh. And what an important point that is. And, you know, and I don't want to get too far off here on a side subject, but as we progress... In this world, and things start going downhill more and more, it's going to get tougher and tougher, people, to take a stand for those things that are biblical, that are right, and that are truth. It really is. And there's going to come time and places where we have to stop and say, what do we fear more? Do we fear the king or do we fear God? 
Acts 5 makes it pretty clear. We obey God more than we obey man. And we have to make sure we keep that clear there. So these gals took a stand. They were willing to do that. The Lord honored them. So verse 22, if a, ma- if a male was born, cast it in the river. Cast it in the river. Can you imagine that? I mean, seriously, I remember one of the first teachings I ever heard said, put yourself in the Bible. Okay, so I, I'm just trying to envision this. You know, obviously we have five kids. We have five boys. So can you imagine this child being born, and as soon as you see that it is a son, you know that the Egyptians are just waiting. Just kill it. I can't even fathom. And if you had a girl, she gets to stay alive. Now, it doesn't say why she gets to stay alive, but I don't think the Egyptians were going to treat her properly and respectfully by any means whatsoever. What an awful, awful situation to be in. And that's what these Jews were in. This was oppression. This was slavery. This was an awful place to be. But in the midst of this, verse 1 of chapter 2, a man of the house of Levi went and took as his wife a daughter of Levi. Now, I don't like it that it doesn't say their names. But the Bible later on says their names. The mom's name was Jochebed. Jochebed. Great godly gal. I wish the Bible talked more about this woman. Her husband's name was Amram. He was the dad. Jochebed and Amron. If you'd like to know this, I think this is neat. Jochebed's name means Jehovah is glory. Amron's name means exalted people. Now think about what their names mean. Jehovah is glory. In the middle of slavery and death and infanticide and the Egyptians killing it, Jehovah is glory? Yeah, because no matter how difficult that situation is in your life, God still gets the glory. No matter how difficult. Exalted people... These Jews are an exalted people. They're in slavery. Nah, they're an exalted people because they're God's chosen people. That's why I like these names. These names look past the situation and look greater to what God is and what God is doing. And you hear me say this all the time out here. Keep your eyes on the Savior and not the situation. If you keep your eyes on the situation, it is depressing, it is discouraging, and you will walk in that darkness and defeat. Keep your eyes on the Savior. In the midst of slavery and death, Jehovah is glory. In the midst of slavery and death, we're still an exalted people. So these unnamed parents, named later, are also honored in Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, the great chapter on faith, because it says, by faith... They trusted that God would take care of their son. So what happens? Verse 2. So the woman conceived and bore a son. Do you realize that should be joyous? That should be joyous. Your, Your wife is pregnant. But it's not joyous because you're in slavery. If we have a daughter, they're going to take her. If we have a son, they're going to want to kill him. And when she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him three months. Now, for anybody out there that, you know, obviously has children, you know that your first child for the first few months, really is a misnomer of what having a child is like. Newborn babies, you can throw them on the floor. They don't move. They don't do anything. They kind of lay there. They cry when they're hungry. They cry when they need to be changed. And it's kind of a little misnomer of what it's really going to be like. So the first three months, okay, we can hide this kid. Keep him hungry. Keep him clean. Keep him fed. For three months, we can do it. Now, a few months into it, guess what? Little Moses wants to roll over now. Little Moses is going to want to start crawling. Little Moses is starting to get a good set of lungs on him, right? Verse 3, But when she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of bulrushes for him, daubed it with asphalt and pitch, put the child in it, and laid it in the reeds by the river's bank. 
Now, listen, I'm not trying to take this and make this an ultra-emotional message. Verse 3, what was going through that mom's mind? Seriously, you're making a little boat, and you're putting your kid in it, and just going to push it down the river? I don't want to add to the Scriptures, but verse 4, his sister stood afar off to know what would be done to him. This would be a sister, Miriam. She was the oldest, the Bible tells us. Could the mom not watch? I mean, moms, could you do that? I mean, could you put your little three-month-old in a boat and stick him down the river and let him go? And just in faith, just hope, just in faith, just hope. I mean, that's the thing is, Hebrews 11 tells us that his mom and dad did this in faith. I I mean, what was going through their mind? Okay, we're going to put him in the boat, and we're going to stick him down the river, and what? I I don't know. Sometimes that happens out here at church. I'm doing something. Rich will come up to me, or Dawn will come up to me and say, what are you doing? I don't know what I'm doing. But in faith, I'm just trying it and seeing what happens. Hebrews 11.23 says this, By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's command. See, it's interesting. They didn't stick him in the, in the river out of fear. They were not afraid of the king's command. See, this is why it's so important to get the full Bible. They stuck this kid in faith realizing something is going to happen. It wasn't fear. It wasn't, we got to do this. It was, this is what we're going to do and trust. Trust. If you're going through a difficult time right now, faith, trust. God may be asking you to get in the little boat and go down the river. Trust Him. Verse 5, Then the daughter of the Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, and her maidens walked along the riverside. And when she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby wept. So she had compassion on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Stop right there. Okay. If you're looking for someone... To rescue your little Jewish baby, I don't think you would pick the daughter of the Pharaoh, who the Pharaoh is the one that says, let's kill him. Verse 7, then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women that she may nurse the child for you? Miriam jumps right in. Verse 8, Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the maiden went and called the child's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. As the woman took the child and nursed him. She got paid to take care of her own kid. Now, how's that sound, moms? Go stick your kid in the mommy for a little bit and see if somebody will rescue it and come back and pay you. She got paid to take care of her own child. Now, let's not sit here and say, Oh, she knew this. She didn't know this was going to happen. This was faith. This wasn't... Warned in a divine dream, Jochebed, take your child, put him in the river, send him down and trust me that he'll going to come out, this gal's going to find... No, this was a complete faith thing. I tell you, I don't know how many times out here at church there's been this situation that's popped up and it just looks awful. I mean, it just looks awful. And so in faith, you take a step, you trust the Lord, and next thing you know, you got a verse 9. He comes back to his mom and is able to be taken care of and gets paid to do that. Uh, Unbelievable. Verse 10, And the child grew and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. So she called his name Moses, which means drawn out or to draw out, saying, Because I drew him out of the water. Which puts us into a perfect position for next week with verse 11. Here's the main points for tonight, just to finish this up. It's 8 o'clock. Number one, you're going to go through tough times. 
Don't be shell-shocked by that. Don't be surprised by that. Don't be disappointed by that, that God has let you down. He says you will. He goes, but I'm allowing these things to be a spiritual mirror in your life to see how well you handle this. It's a trial. It's a test to reveal what do you need to work on. Are you going to rise to the occasion, or is this crisis of faith going to flatten you? It's a test. But I tell you, when you go through difficult times, just like the nation of Israel, you will grow exceedingly and your walk in relationship with the Lord. Number two, Jacobet, Amram, wonderful examples of faith. Jehovah is glory, exalted people is what their names mean. Even in the darkness, God is still shining. And you look at this beautiful picture of faith. I tell you, read verses 1 through 10 again. She sends him out. He comes back. She gets paid to take care of him. It's the Lord. It is the Lord, and I tell you, walk in faith. I just go back to that Hebrews chapter 11. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. When you walk in faith, you're walking in that trust that your Father, your Savior is going to take care of you and meet your needs, no matter how difficult the situation is. So we'll pick this up next week, verse 11, study of Moses. I tell you, I love chapters 3 and chapter 4. I'm really looking forward to this. It took me two weeks to want to do Exodus but I'm really glad we're doing it now. So, any final questions, comments here? Ryan. Uh, the plan to exterminate the Hebrew uh, children, and just like the, uh, the Bethlehem It is pure Satan, and I think that's a great way to put it there. And he also has no new tricks. I mean, if you go back to Genesis with Adam and Eve in the garden, he still does the same thing today. Take the truth of God and twist it. I mean, nothing's changed. Jesus said he's a father of lies, and he's been a father of lies from the beginning. And you mentioned what would be going through a parent's mind to throw their child in the river. That's why I think it's so important in Hebrews 11, verse 23, that Jacobed and Amram, the Bible says, had no fear of the king. They were not going to walk in fear. It's amazing. When you walk in fear, nothing good ever comes out of that. Have you ever had that moment in your life and you said, wow. Remember that time I was really scared? I made great decisions when I'm really scared. Never. Fear destroys faith. They can't be in the same breath. And so you said, what would be going through their mind? Fear is going through their mind. Not a trust of the Lord, but a fear of what if. Anybody else have anything before we close up? All right. Let's let you go here. Heavenly Fathers, we just come to you now. Thank you for the time to be here tonight. Help us to walk in faith and not fear. Help us, Lord, to realize these difficult times grow us and to be a light and a witness for you no matter what we're facing. Thank you for being a God that loves and cares and understands. And we love you and we praise you. We lift this up in your name. Amen. You guys have a good week and God bless.